Section 21 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section twenty one chapter sixty six part six lauderdale boasted extremely of his services in procuring these two laws the king by the former was rendered absolute master of the church and might legally by his edict re-established if he thought proper the catholic religion in scotland by the latter he saw a powerful force ready at his call he had even the advantage of being able to disguise his orders under the name of the privy council and in case of failure in his enterprises could by such a pretence apologize for his conduct to the parliament of england but in proportion as these laws were agreeable to the king they gave alarm to the english commons and were the chief cause of the redoubled attacks which they made upon lauderdale these attacks however served only to fortify him in his interest with the king and though it is probable that the militia of scotland during the divided state of that kingdom would if matters had come to extremities have been of little service against england yet did charles regard the credit of it as a considerable support to his authority and lauderdale by degrees became the prime or rather sole minister for scotland the natural indolence of the king disposed him to place entire confidence in a man who had so far extended the royal prerogative and who was still disposed to render it absolutely uncontrollable in a subsequent session of the same parliament a severe law was enacted against conventicles ruinous fines were imposed both on the preachers and hearers even if the meetings had been in houses but field conventicles were subjected to the penalty of death and confiscation of goods four hundred marks scotch were offered as a reward to those who would seize the criminals and they were indemnified for any slaughter which they might commit in the execution of such an undertaking and as it was found difficult to get evidence against these conventicles however numerous it was enacted by another law that whoever being required by the council refused to give information upon oath should be punished by arbitrary fines by imprisonment or by banishment to the plantations thus all persecution naturally or rather necessarily adopts the iniquities as well as the rigors of the inquisition what a considerable part of the society consider as their duty and honor and even many of the opposite party are apt to regard with compassion and indulgence can by no other expedient be subjected to such severe penalties as the natural sentiments of mankind appropriate only to the greatest crimes though lauderdale found this ready compliance in the parliament a party was formed against him of which duke hamilton was the head this nobleman with tweddale and others went to london and applied to the king who during the present depression and insignificance of parliament was alone able to correct the abuses of lauderdale's administration 
and all approaches of truth to the throne were barred by the ridiculous law against leasing-making a law which seems to have been extorted by the ancient nobles in order to protect their own tyranny oppression and injustice great precautions therefore were used by the scottish malcontents in their representations to the king but no redress was obtained charles loaded them with caresses and continued lauderdale in his authority a very bad at least a severe use was made of this authority the privy council dispossessed twelve gentlemen or noblemen of their houses which were converted into so many garrisons established for the suppression of conventicles the nation it was pretended was really on account of these religious assemblies in a state of war and by the ancient law the king in such an emergence was empowered to place a garrison in any house where he should judge it expedient it were endless to recount every act of violence and arbitrary authority exercised during lauderdale's administration all the lawyers were put from the bar nay banished by the king's order twelve miles from the capital and by that means the whole justice of the kingdom was suspended for a year till these lawyers were brought to declare it as their opinion that all appeals to parliament were illegal a letter was procured from the king for expelling twelve of the chief magistrates of edinburgh and declaring them incapable of all public office though their only crime had been their want of compliance with lauderdale the boroughs of scotland have a privilege of meeting once a year by their deputies in order to consider the state of trade and make by-laws for its regulation in this convention a petition was voted complaining of some late acts which obstructed commerce and praying the king that he would empower his commissioner in the next session of parliament to give his assent for repealing them for this presumption as it was called several of the members were fined and imprisoned one more a member of parliament having moved in the house that in imitation of the english parliament no bill should pass except after three readings he was for this pretended offence immediately sent to prison by the commissioner the private deportment of lauderdale was as insolent and provoking as his public administration was violent and tyrannical justice likewise was universally perverted by faction and interest and from the great rapacity of that duke and still more of his duchess all offices and favours were openly put to sale no one was allowed to approach the throne who was not dependent on him and no remedy could be hoped for or obtained against his manifold oppressions the case of mitchell shows that this minister was as much destitute of truth and honour as of lenity and justice mitchell was a desperate fanatic and had entertained a resolution of assassinating sharp archbishop of st andrews who by his former apostasy and subsequent rigor had rendered himself extremely odious to the covenanters in the year sixteen sixty eight mitchell fired a pistol at the primate as he was sitting in his coach but the bishop of orkney stepping into the coach happened to stretch out his arm which intercepted the ball and was much shattered by it this happened in the principal street of the city but so generally was the archbishop hated that the assassin was allowed peaceably to walk off and having turned a street or two 
and thrown off a wig which disguised him, he immediately appeared in public, and remained altogether unsuspected. Some years after, Sharp remarked one who seemed to eye him very eagerly, and being still anxious lest an attempt of assassination should be renewed, he ordered the man to be seized and examined. Two loaded pistols were found upon him, and as he was now concluded to be the author of the former attempt, Sharp promised that if he would confess his guilt, he should be dismissed without any punishment. Mitchell, for the conjecture was just, was so credulous as to believe him, but was immediately produced before the council by the faithless primate. The council, having no proof against him, but hoping to involve the whole body of covenanters in this odious crime, solemnly renewed the promise of pardon, if he would make a full discovery. And it was a great disappointment to them when they found, upon his confession, that only one person, who was now dead, had been acquainted with his bloody purpose. Mitchell was then carried before a court of judicature, and required to renew his confession. But being apprehensive, lest, though a pardon for life had been promised him, other corporal punishment might still be inflicted, he refused compliance, and was sent back to prison. He was next examined before the council, under pretense of his being concerned in the insurrection at Pentland, and though no proof appeared against him, he was put to the question, and, contrary to the most obvious principles of equity, was urged to accuse himself. He endured the torture with singular resolution, and continued obstinate in the denial of a crime of which, it is believed, he really was not guilty. Instead of obtaining his liberty, he was sent to the Bass, a very high rock surrounded by the sea, at this time converted into a state prison, and full of the unhappy covenanters. He there remained in great misery, loaded with irons, till the year 1677, when it was resolved, by some new examples, to strike a fresh terror into the persecuted but still obstinate enthusiasts. Mitchell was then brought before a court of judicature, and put upon his trial for an attempt to assassinate an archbishop and a privy councillor. His former confession was pleaded against him, and was proved by the testimony of the Duke of Lauderdale, Lord Commissioner, Lord Hatton, his brother, the Earl of Roths, and the primate himself. Mitchell, besides maintaining that the privy council was no court of judicature, and that a confession before them was not judicial, asserted that he had been engaged to make that confession by a solemn promise of pardon. The four privy councillors denied upon with that any such promise had ever been given. The prisoner then desired that the council books might be produced in court, and even offered a copy of that day's proceedings to be read. But the privy councillors maintained that, after they had made oath, no further proof could be admitted, and that the books of council contained the king's secrets, which were on no account to be divulged. They were not probably aware, when they swore, that the clerk, having engrossed the promise of pardon in the narrative of Mitchell's confession, the whole minute had been signed by the chancellor, and that the proofs of their perjury were by that means committed to record. Though the prisoner was condemned, Lauderdale was still inclined to pardon him. But the unrelenting primate rigorously insisted upon his execution, and said that if assassins remained unpunished, 
his life must be exposed to perpetual danger. Mitchell was accordingly executed at Edinburgh in January 1678. Such a complication of cruelty and treachery shows the character of those ministers to whom the king at this time entrusted the government of Scotland. Lauderdale's administration, besides the iniquities arising from the violence of his temper, and the still greater iniquities inseparable from all projects of persecution, was attended with other circumstances which engaged him in severe and arbitrary measures. An absolute government was to be introduced, which on its commencement is often most rigorous, and tyranny was still obliged, for want of military power, to cover itself under an appearance of law, a situation which rendered it extremely awkward in its motions, and, by provoking opposition, extended the violence of its oppressions. The rigors exercised against conventicles, instead of breaking the spirit of the fanatics, had tended only, as is usual, to render them more obstinate, to increase the fervor of then zeal, to link them more closely together, and to inflame them against the established hierarchy. The commonalty, almost everywhere in the South, particularly in the western counties, frequented conventicles without reserve, and the gentry, though they themselves commonly abstained from these illegal places of worship, connived at this irregularity in their inferiors. In order to interest the former on the side of the persecutors, a bond or contract was, by order of the Privy Council, tendered to the landlords in the West, by which they were to engage for the good behavior of their tenants. And in case any tenant frequented a conventicle, the landlord was to subject himself to the same fine as could by law be exacted from the delinquent. It was ridiculous to give sanction to laws by voluntary contracts. It was iniquitous to make one man answerable for the conduct of another. It was illegal to impose such hard conditions upon men who had no wise offended. For these reasons the greater part of the gentry refused to sign these bonds, and Lauderdale, enraged at this opposition, endeavored to break their spirit by expedients which were still more unusual and more arbitrary. The law enacted against conventicles had called them seminaries of rebellion. This expression, which was nothing but a flourish of rhetoric, Lauderdale and the Privy Council were willing to understand in a literal sense, and because the western counties abounded in conventicles, though otherwise in profound peace, they pretended that these counties were in a state of actual war and rebellion. They made, therefore, an agreement with some highland chieftains to call out their clans, to the number of eight thousand men. To these they joined the guards, and the militia of Angus, and they sent the whole to live at free quarters upon the lands of such as had refused the bonds illegally required of them. The obnoxious counties were the most populous and most industrious in Scotland. The Highlanders were the people the most disorderly and the least civilized. It is easy to imagine the havoc and destruction which ensued. A multitude, not accustomed to discipline, averse to the restraint of laws, trained up in rapine and violence, were let loose amidst those whom they were taught to regard as enemies to their prince and to their religion. 
nothing escaped their ravenous hands by menaces by violence and sometimes by tortures men were obliged to discover their concealed wealth neither age nor sex nor innocence afforded protection and the gentry finding that even those who had been most compliant and who had subscribed the bonds were equally exposed to the rapacity of those barbarians confirmed themselves still more in the resolution of refusing them the voice of the nation was raised against this enormous outrage and after two months free quarter the highlanders were sent back to their hills loaded with the spoils and execrations of the west those who had been engaged to subscribe the bonds could find no security but by turning out such tenants as they suspected of an inclination to conventicles and thereby depopulating their estates to increase the misery of these unhappy farmers the council enacted that none should be received anywhere or allowed a habitation who brought not a certificate of his conformity from the parish minister that the obstinate and refractory might not escape further persecution a new device was fallen upon by the law of scotland any man who should go before a magistrate and swear that he thought himself in danger from another might obtain a writ of law burrows as it is called by which the latter was bound under the penalty of imprisonment and outlawry to find security for his good behavior lauderdale entertained the absurd notion of making the king sue out writs of law boroughs against his subjects on this pretence the refusers of the bonds were summoned to appear before the council and were required to bind themselves under the penalty of two years rent neither to frequent conventicles themselves nor allow their family and tenants to be present at those unlawful assemblies thus chicanery was joined to tyranny and the majesty of the king instead of being exalted was in reality prostituted as if he were obliged to seek the same security which one neighbor might require of another it was an old law but seldom executed that a man who was accused of any crime and did not appear in order to stand his trial might be intercommuned that is he might be publicly outlawed and whoever afterwards either on account of business relation nay charity had the least intercourse with him was subjected to the same penalties as could by law be inflicted on the criminal himself several writs of intercommuning were now issued against the hearers and preachers in conventicles and by this severe and even absurd law crimes and guilt went on multiplying in a geometrical proportion where laws themselves are so violent it is no wonder that an administration should be tyrannical lest the cries of an oppressed people should reach the throne the council forbade under severe penalties all noblemen or gentlemen of landed property to leave the kingdom a severe edict especially where the sovereign himself resided in a foreign country notwithstanding this act of council cassillis first afterwards hamilton and tweddale went to london and laid their complaints before the king these violent proceedings of lauderdale were opposite to the natural temper of charles and he immediately issued orders for discontinuing the bonds and the writs of law boroughs 
but as he was commonly little touch with what lay at a distance he entertained not the proper indignation against those who had abused his authority even while he retracted these oppressive measures he was prevailed with to avow and praise them in a letter which he wrote to the privy council this proof of confidence might fortify the hands of the ministry but the king ran a manifest risk of losing the affections of his subjects by not permitting even those who were desirous of it to distinguish between him and their oppressors it is reported that charles after a full hearing of the debates concerning scottish affairs said i perceive that lauderdale has been guilty of many bad things against the people of scotland but i cannot find that he has acted anything contrary to my interest a sentiment unworthy of a sovereign during the absence of hamilton and the other discontented lords the king allowed lauderdale to summon a convention of estates at edinburgh this assembly besides granting some money bestowed applause on all lauderdale's administration and in their addresses to the king expressed the highest contentment and satisfaction but these instances of complacence had the contrary effect in england from what was expected by the contrivers of them all men there concluded that in scotland the very voice of liberty was totally suppressed and that by the prevalence of tyranny grievances were so riveted that it was become dangerous even to mention them or complain to the prince who alone was able to redress them from the slavery of the neighboring kingdom they inferred the arbitrary disposition of the king and from the violence with which sovereign power was there exercised they apprehended the miseries which might ensue to themselves upon their loss of liberty if persecution it was asked by a protestant church could be carried to such extremes what might be dreaded from the prevalence of popery which had ever in all ages made open profession of exterminating by fire and sword every opposite sect or communion and if the first approaches towards unlimited authority were so tyrannical how dismal its final establishment when all dread of opposition should at last be removed by mercenary armies and all sense of shame by long and inveterate habit end of section twenty one chapter sixty six part six recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com